Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Erica. And I'm Abby. Today, I'm going to tell you guys about the disappearance of Ashley Summers. So pour yourself a strong cup of joe, and let's dive in. Ashley Summers was born in 1993 and lived with her family in Cleveland, Ohio. Ashley was very outgoing and really close with her family. It was interesting to watch the documentaries about her because their family was so big and extended, but they were all so close and lived within a couple miles of each other. That's interesting that she was so close with her extended family. I mean, you see it a lot with like immediate family, but... The extended family is kind of different, but also I'm sure it was nice. Yeah, I think they just happened to all be close enough in age. Like in the documentary I was watching, they talk about how she hung out with her great uncle and great aunt. Like they're just, I mean, how many times have you done that? You know what I mean? It's just not, I you go around them and stuff every now and then maybe for family get togethers, but you don't see your great uncles and great aunts on like a daily basis like this family did. Yeah, I typically only see like, great aunts and uncles at like family gatherings and stuff not just at random times during the week i don't just hang out with them ashley was really close with her mom jennifer and they spent a lot of time together one of their things they like to do is go to amusement parks and watch scary movies which i identified with so much because that is such a me and erica combo of activities yeah remember when we went to cedar point and we were watching scary movies and we like ordered delivery and they knocked on the door and like scared the shit out of us (laughs) yes (laughs) in 2007 ashley turned 14 and started to become that angsty teen that we all know and love and she started getting into that dating scene too and she found herself getting a boyfriend who was 16 years old named Jean. And she was obsessed with this boy. She spent all her time with him, almost a little too much that her mom kind of tried to pull them apart a little bit. And Ashley didn't like that. She thought she probably should be able to make her own decisions. Boys are not good at that age. Yeah, and it was bad for her at this age because she started to argue with her mom and she kind of started to dive into a little bit of her rebellious side. And I don't mean rebellious, like she did anything that bad. She just, like a normal preteen teenager does, she started kind of snapping at her mom and not listening. And she, at one point, took some money from her mom's purse, which isn't great, but also not abnormal for a teen. So was there a reason that she took the money from her mom's purse? Like, did she want to Like, was it for a specific purchase? Shortly after this happened, she came home with a um, tattoo on her arm. And let me tell you, when I say I give her props for getting the classic stereotype tattoo, it was a heart with Jean's name in the middle. And she clearly went somewhere where the person would tattoo her under 18 without parental consent because the tattoo is not great quality. Eric, I'll show you it real quick. Hold on. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Like, why was she getting tattooed? Because she was 14 still at the time that she got the tattoo, right? That's just insane. Also, never, ever, ever, ever anyone out there get a tattoo of your boyfriend's name on your body. I don't recommend it. But 
If you're married, it's a whole different thing, I guess, if you really want to. But just don't do it if you're dating, especially if you're 14. So also, the image of the tattoo that you can find online is like a... It's not an actual photo of her arm. It's a recreation of what it looks like. I'm pretty sure it wasn't red. The heart wasn't red. I think it was all black. And we'll post a picture of that on our social media. But that is an interesting tattoo. It looks very professionally done. (laughs) It's just that I love it. It's that classic stereotypical... It's like what you see in cartoons and stuff when they get mom tattooed in a heart. And it just... I loved this part of the story. I loved the tattoo. I was... I don't love the circumstances or her getting it, but just so boldly getting something like that. I was here for it. It's just... I'm trying to imagine. Like, I don't even remember who my boyfriend would have been at age 14 and to think about like having that tattooed on my body still to this day i'll tell you what i was angsty enough when it came to boys and like emotional enough i could see me trying to do something stupid like that well i could see me (laughs) doing something stupid like that but like i I didn't go that far I i got like stuffed animals with their names on it or like binder that I wrote their name on like I I just I didn't go as far as yeah so 14 would have been like what seventh eighth grade yeah so Josh Josh would have been my boyfriend at that time of course it was a Josh of course it was a Josh (laughs) that's they were all Josh's and I had a little (laughs) fish that was dedicated to my boyfriend Josh it was yellow and black I think I had a lot of and I've got finger quotes up for this boyfriends in middle school because you know, you dated them, but you didn't actually hang out with them or anything. Maybe you saw them at like a school function. I hung out with him a couple different times, but it was because we didn't go to the same school. But it was like, you know, parents were there or whatever, but we were never just like alone. Well, I think it's a little different. This is such a tangent, but I think it is different today because I have like cousins who were in, well, they're out of middle school now, but they're in middle school and they had boyfriends and they go... They would go like on camping trips with their boyfriend's families and stuff. And I'm like, I cannot imagine doing that in middle school. No, I just feel like it's a lot different nowadays. Things are like sped up more, I think. Yeah, a little bit more. So those of you that are still here, we're going to go back to the story. Thanks for sticking with us. We're back in there. The disagreements, the money, the tattoo all kind of led to a blow up between Ashley and her mom. And Ashley and her mom decided for the summer, because she was out of school, that maybe she'd go stay with her grandma for the summer just to give them some space, some time to relax. I could only imagine the argument that would ensue between not only my mom and I, but like if you throw my dad into that equation, all hell would have broken loose. Yeah, I think, well, I have a pretty laid back mom. She's always been chill. But with something like that, I mean, I wasn't even supposed to get like cartilage or anything pierced till after I was 18. So I think that wouldn't have gone over well. And I can't imagine it would go over well for most mom and dads. I have a hard time imagining a parent that would just be like, cool. Yeah, looks great. <laughs> she gets nice a second tat. one. Yeah. Nice tap, bro. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, her mom, I think, was trying to just help Ashley get a little bit of space from Gene and, you know, understand that he is not her whole life. So, by her going and staying with her grandma, it put a little bit more space in between them. And she was hoping to separate them a little bit because they were spending every day together. And did you say where her grandma lived? I think she was just a couple miles away. I don't think it was that far. It was still in the Cleveland, like the same neighborhood area in Cleveland. All the family lived within a couple miles of each other. And then really quick, I do want to throw in that even though Ashley and her mom got into this fight, it wasn't anything 
too serious. Her mom is very active in the investigation and her family all seems very close knit. And I think it's important to remember that throughout this story. The mystery has been solved. Here at Crime Over Coffee, our go-to caffeinated beverage for every episode is Fire Department Coffee. And you can get some as well and save 15% with our exclusive coupon code CRIMEPOD15. Owned and operated by firefighters and veterans, 10% of all their proceeds go directly to helping sick and injured first responders. And with an incredible range of flavors and caffeine strength, it's a company that all of us can easily support. So please go to firedeptcoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. During the summer, Ashley is living with her grandma, but she spends a lot of time at her great uncle's house who just lives a couple blocks away. And she also does tend to bebop around to her other family's houses and she sees them all the time. She's always at one of their houses. Quick question that I just thought of. So you said that they all live within a few miles of each other. So she's not that far from her boyfriend. No, he was still with her every day. That's what I was going to say. So what was the point? I mean, they were trying to get some space between the two, but she moved a couple miles away. Well, you know, I think it was somewhat that somewhat in an interview. Her mom said, she was hoping that she would obey her grandma a little bit more than she obeyed her. Because you you tend, I mean, I think I would listen to my grandma and respect her more than my mom. No offense, mom, love you. But <laughs> like you don't backsass grandma, right? I think that was kind of the thought process. Somewhere between July 7th and July 9th, it does vary kind of depending on where you look. The FBI website has it different. The Charlie Project has a different. The missing Facebook page is a different. So I'm going to keep it neat as neat as I can by saying between July 7th 2007 and July 9th 2007 Ashley attended a party at a family member's house his name was Keith and it was an annual party that he had for his birthday and kind of celebrating the 4th of July it was a big event a lot of the family members went and they'd have music food a pool just kind of your typical family event Ashley showed up to the party by herself and had walked there from her great uncle Kevin's house, which was about two miles. And when she arrived, people there said that she seemed kind of off. She was sad or something was up with her. And this was very unusual for her because she was pretty vivacious with her family. She really enjoyed being around them and was very fun loving. However, as she's there for a while, she perks up. She starts hanging out with the kids and the family, which she loved them and had a good time with them. And they went swimming and just enjoyed their time together. And she was there about three or four hours and told some people there that she was going to leave and head over to her great aunt Christina's house, which was a couple blocks away. And this was around 6 p.m. Flash forward two days after the party and Jennifer, Ashley's mom, had not heard from Ashley, which was very strange. They tend to talk every day. So it was weird that she hadn't gotten any text, phone call, anything from her. 
Jennifer decides to call Ashley's great uncle Kevin to see if he'd seen her since she'd been staying there quite a bit. And Kevin had not seen Ashley since the morning of the party. He did say that they got into a fight that morning and ended up breaking Ashley's cell phone, which would explain why she wasn't communicating with the family. She didn't have a phone on her. She didn't have a backup phone or anything like that. Jennifer starts to call around to other family members and nobody has either seen or heard from Ashley in two days since the party, basically. And Jennifer is immediately scared. She calls the police to file a missing persons report. And police, unfortunately, just think she's a runaway child. It's really sad that that's always the police's first thought is that a teenager is automatically a runaway because I feel like it could make a huge difference in cases if police treated the case immediately like it was of concern even if it ends up being a runaway I mean I I think it would be better to be safe than sorry and like just take it seriously and be like they're in danger I agree it's more often than not it seems like when we're researching these cases police either think they're a runaway or it's an adult and they say they're allowed to leave so we're not going to look into it and the first couple hours are so crucial in a missing person and it's already been two days and then they're just stalling it even more it's very sad and on top of that Cleveland is not known for being a safe place to live they have a very high crime rate and it just I think put everybody's nerves even more on edge they decided to look into Ashley's social media because she was very active on it and see if she'd been on there or posted anything and Her last login was on July 4th, and this was on MySpace, just to age us a little bit. Just a little bit. (laughs) Next, they decided to check in with Gene, Ashley's boyfriend, because she had been spending every day with him. So they thought, oh, he maybe she's with him. She's been staying at his house and he'll know what's going on. Let me guess. Gene broke up with her, and that was why she was sad when she came to the party. That's not what happened. That was just kind of my first assumption when you said that she came to the party sad. I was like, oh, well, 14-year-old obviously sad her boyfriend broke up with her. I think from my guess, she was upset because of the fight with her great uncle and the fact that he broke her phone and she could no longer communicate with her boyfriend. Was That was my assumption. Gene said he had not heard from her since the morning of that party. And he was actually out of town for like a family get together as well during this whole time period and he said it was weird because she abruptly stopped talking to him that day which I can only assume is because her phone broke. The family takes this into their own hands since police decided not to I guess at this point and immediately they have flyers printed they're canvassing the area and like I said this was a big family so they're all out walking around and putting flyers up and they're all out doing everything they can to try to find Ashley. Something notable that Jennifer says in an interview is that she purposely put flyers up around Gene's house just to kind of nudge him and see if she could get a reaction from him and see if he had anything to do with it, I think. But she said the next day when she went over there, they were all gone, like someone had ripped them off, which is interesting to me. I don't know that it was Gene that did that, but it's it's weird. I don't feel like somebody just goes around ripping down missing person posters. Eventually, Cleveland Police Department kind of starts looking into it and they do interview Gene a couple times. However, they don't 
ever call him a suspect or anything and they also don't release any of his interview stuff ever so we don't know what was said in the interviews but whatever it was I guess was enough for them to clear him as a suspect Jennifer is a little sketched out by Gene though she kind of starts following him around she followed him one night and he went into an abandoned house and I think she said she tried to call police about it but it didn't turn into anything. Um, I'm not sure what that was about. Later on in life, Gene is in and out of prison and jail for drug-related charges, a couple of robbery things. He claims it's because the disappearance of Ashley really mentally bothered him and it kind of turned him into drugs. When you watch interviews with Jennifer, it does seem like maybe she had questions about Gene's innocence. I don't know. And he was cleared as a suspect in police's eyes and the FBI, which they come in later. So I hate to put too much on him, but also we don't know. It's unanswered in a way. Well, you said Gene was out of town when she disappeared anyways, wasn't he? Yes. So how does the mom think that he could have been involved? Well, he was out of town the day of the party. I'm not sure when he got back, but... It is possible that Ashley left the party and then ended up going to somewhere to wait on Gene or go see Gene and it turned into something where maybe he did something then. I don't know. There is a window there because there's that two days where they're not hearing from her. She doesn't have a phone, but the family members also aren't seeing her. So, and I think that's why they have the two day missing date on a lot of things is because they don't know if she was really missing right away or if she went and hung out with friends or something and they just missed it and then she disappeared. We don't know exactly when it happened. Weeks go by with no leads until about a month after Ashley's disappearance. Her mom receives a phone call from a blocked number during one of her breaks at work and it's The person says, it's me, mom. I'm okay. Don't worry. And hangs up. It was only a couple seconds long. And it was from what Jennifer could tell, she thinks it was Ashley. She does think it was her? Yes, she does. But she's not sure if it's her just actually saying she's okay or if someone was forcing her to do that to get them to kind of back off the investigation. Later that same year, on November 17th, Ashley's grandpa and step-grandma were driving around the Cleveland area and they saw a girl on a sidewalk that looked like Ashley, except this girl had short blonde hair and Ashley had had long brown hair. So that was different, but the build and everything else seemed the same. And they went down a little ways and turned around to come back and take a second look. But when they'd gotten back, that girl had turned down a road or an alley and was gone. I mean, hair is something that's easy to change, so... And I think that was their thought process. They're like, well, we need to look and make sure too. It's unfortunate though, that when they turned down the alley to like try to just double check or even talk to the girl that she was just gone. Mm -hmm. Because that could have, I mean, either been a, yes, this is her, like we found Ashley or like, no, this is no lead. And now we're just kind of questioning whether or not it was anything worth noting. Six months later from the November date. So around May of 2008, It had been nearly a year since Ashley had disappeared and they had had no leads and nothing. But the Cleveland division of the FBI starts to get more involved. And it's because there were other teenage girls that had gone missing from Cleveland around the same age as Ashley a couple years prior. And those girls were Amanda Berry and Gina DeJesus. And 
they wondered if maybe the same person had captured these girls. Some of you might recognize those names, and I will get to why. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. They looked into the similarities of the case. All the girls did have close family ties. And at one point in time, they all attended the same school and disappeared from the same mile to mile radius. Were there any leads on Amanda or Gina? They did not have any. It was very similar to Ashley's where they couldn't find anything specific. Police start to canvas the area. They look at sex offenders around, people with criminal backgrounds, but they cannot find anything. And nothing comes of it until five years later in spring of 2013, specifically May 6th. A person living in the Cleveland area hears a girl screaming outside. And there was a girl who had came out of their this house and was yelling for help saying, my name's Amanda Berry. I've been missing 10 years. Call the police. That was when you said that they were screaming. That was my very first thought was like, oh, no, this is going to be one of the missing girls. But I wasn't sure if it was going to be Amanda, Ashley or Gina. Police show up to this man's house and find three women that had been held captive in the house for about 10 years. And you guys might start to click. It was Ariel Castro's house. And it happened to just be a couple blocks away from where Ashley went missing and these other girls. In the house, they found Amanda Berry, Gina DeJesus, a third woman at this point. And they did not release that person yet to the public. And Jennifer and the family had heard about this. It was obviously big news. And they were waiting to see if it was going to be Ashley. And to their relief or disappointment, depending on how you look at it, it turned out to be Michelle Knight, who had also been taken about 10 years prior. That's really sad because when you first said that they found three people and you said Gina and Amanda and I was like holding my breath because I was like, and Ashley, (laughs) and then you didn't say it. I think that's where the family was and a lot of people in the area who knew Ashley was missing probably had the same thought. For those of you who don't know about the Ariel Castro case, I'm just going to give you a quick, very quick brief on what it was. He had abducted these women well, when they were kids, around 14, 15 years of old, by luring them into his vehicle because they had known his daughter at the time. So he gave them rides, quotation around there, and he actually just abducted them and kept them in his house for 10 years where he raped them, tortured them, the most disgusting, unspeakable things to these women. Or was there any possibility that he'd had Ashley at some point and gotten rid of her? Police look into that and they don't know. They didn't find any evidence of her in the house, but that's where my mind went. I'm like, his MO was to keep the women, but maybe something happened in the car ride where Ashley tried to fight back and he ended up murdering her and disposing of her body, possibly. I wonder if he had any type of way because it all fits so much. The the age, the area... It just makes sense. Did they ever interview him about Ashley Summers? They did interview him and question him, but he 
maintained that he did not know who she was and had never known who she was. Ariel Castro did plead guilty and got served a life sentence plus something insane like a thousand years something so he would never be out but I still never understand that when people get like three life sentences or whatever and it's like why my understanding and this is my understanding just in my own head and what I've decided this has no factual thing to it but I'm always thinking if we find a technology or research or something that makes people live longer that way they can't get out in case they are able to live longer the only other thing that I can think of and it's a stretch a little bit, but if they're sentenced to three life sentences in prison for three different counts, and then all of a sudden, years down the road, they are declared innocent of one of those counts, there's still the other two counts keeping them in prison for two more life sentences. But it's still, it just seems redundant. I'm sure there's some criminal law legal way that they look at it, and that's how they've come up with it. But I don't personally know. He was found guilty on, I think it was like 96 charges or something, but he did end up hanging himself in his jail cell about a month after he pled guilty. In the summer of 2012, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children released a age progression photo of Ashley. They've done two of them, so you can see those. We'll definitely post them on our social media as well. And we don't find out anything more. There's no more leads. Until January of 2015, there was a photo taken from an ATM of a girl in Rhode Island, and it was posted on a most wanted website for the area because she was linked to trying to commit identity theft. And what was crazy is that this girl looks so much like Ashley. Do they have a picture of it? Yes, and I will show you. It will also be posted on our social media as well. So looking at these photos... She looks very similar to Ashley Summers. So much so that the family thought it could be her. And they actually ended up going on the Dr. Phil show to talk about this case in the photo and how much it looks like. And they had some facial recognition experts look at it. And they said it was an 80% likelihood that it was the same person. And they have this big list of features they look at and they go through their process as well. Um, You can watch that. Well, just looking at it, the shape of the head's the same, the nose is the same, the eyebrows are the same, the eyes, the mouth, the chin, like it's literally... It looks just like her. Like I would bet money that this was her eight years later. Like I just keep staring at it because I can't. They get this exposure with the Dr. Phil show and people talking about it and sharing it and a lady reaches out and identifies the woman in the ATM as her child and... It is not Ashley. Mad. I know. That was probably pretty devastating in a way for the family to have all that hope. Like maybe she's alive and well. And then they're back to where they started with no idea, no explanation. It just looks so much like her. It's uncanny. Also, I just want to point out, if you have listened to many of our podcast episodes, you know how I feel about missing people. And if somebody's missing in my head, they're they're not just living a life somewhere because they're going to be caught on a camera like this or something. So I think that this is just like in my head, it just makes so much sense that if somebody's missing, they're going to be caught on camera or on something. They're not just completely hiding away and unable to be found. So it would have been a good ending to the story if this really was her for many reasons. Unfortunately, in this case and so many others, we're left with 
no answers and just so many questions. There was one development that happened. It's not necessarily about Ashley, but in relation possibly to the case that I just discovered this morning because it happened two days ago, the conviction. Kevin Donathan, which was Ashley's great uncle Kevin that she often stayed with, was sentenced to 35 years in prison after pleading guilty to quite a few charges that involved rape and sexual misconduct of several minors, which is curious. I have to say that when you started telling this story, my first thought was that it was going to go to the uncle. I'm curious as to what their argument really was about when they when he broke his her phone. Was it really that she was talking crap about the family or was it something else? And part of me felt like or part of me thought that maybe the story was going to end with you being like, and the uncle did it. The end. Well, here's the thing with this situation. The police did look into him and didn't find anything. They searched the house to see if there's any evidence and even last year searched his home again. And they say he's not a suspect in her case. I wonder if maybe one, he is involved directly or if he had the wrong kind of people over who maybe got involved. Yeah, I'm just, I really see him as kind of suspicious. And when you first told me my like gut feeling was that the uncle had something to do with it, which, and I don't know exactly where that came from because you didn't really say anything other than the fact that he broke her phone, which I mean, get mad enough, you can do that. But I know a couple parents who have done it. Yeah. So it's not like that was a huge red flag necessarily. It was just when you were saying it, there was just something in my head that was like, uh oh. Ashley Nicole Summers was 14 years old at the time of her disappearance in 2007. She went missing from Cleveland, Ohio. She is a white female and at the time of her disappearance was approximately 5'5", 130 pounds. And she was last seen wearing a black shirt, blue jeans, and white sneakers. She has brown hair, blue eyes, and a tattoo on her right arm with the heart and the name Jean on it like I told you guys about earlier. As I said, we will post all this stuff on our social media. If you have any information or tips or anything about Ashley and her disappearance, you can contact the Cleveland Police Department at 216-623-5005. There's also a Facebook page um, about her disappearance that you can look at. It's called Help Find Ashley Summers, and there's more information on there as well. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. Also, all of our sources can be found in the show notes of each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. Donations are greatly appreciated and assist in making the podcast possible. Other ways to support us include recommending us to friends and family, giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening medium. So again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.